I was involved in a car accident, which I was T-boned by a Kenworth truck who missed a red light and pretty badly injured my shoulder and neck. And uh, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to finish the sport. And I guess if you ask any athlete, I don't know when they're in the, the throes of being an athlete or being a part of the sport, I don't know that many of them know when it's time to, to hang up the boots, to figuratively speak. Welcome to So What's Next, the podcast for athletes to share their stories. Athletes spend their whole lives training to excel at a sport, their first career, but often the transition out of the sport and towards a new passion can be difficult. I'm Jamie Nobbs, a former Australian figure skater, and I'm so excited to share some stories of amazing Australian athletes. On this week's episode, we have the delightful Heath Spence, our very own Australian cool running story. Heath is an Olympic bobsledder who competed at the 2014 Sochi Winter Olympic Games in both the two-man and four-man bobsleigh crews. Heath has gone on to achieve some incredible things. He's a national bobsled coach for China and Korea, leading bobsledder at Winsport, a non-for-profit helping to fund high-performing athletes in Canada, and more recently has acquired a pilot's license. So I'm very excited to share with you Heath's story. Thanks for joining us. I'm super excited to finally have caught you. I know it's been a few heavy months over in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. It's been tough to catch me down. And then I think when you first approached me about it, I think the world was imploding on itself and I was kind of a little bit hesitant to be able to tell everyone how jovial and how positive my outlook on the future is when everyone else was struggling. But here we are three months later. So you're you're in Calgary. What's it like over there? Are you, are you still in like isolation or are there any restrictions for you guys at the moment? Yeah, uh, we're... I don't know what the number of restriction, I, they, they numbered it and we did a full kind of restricted thing for about two months there. We're now back to, I guess, 50% capacities at bars and restaurants. Social distancing is the norm. Every drive through is handing out face masks and they haven't quite made them mandatory yet. But uh, I think after the last weekend of, of escalating numbers that just keeps creeping back in, I think the face mask in public indoors will become a mandatory thing. And and public transport that we're talking about as well. For me, my life hasn't really changed much. I'm not super social anyway. So it's not like I'm missing out on going out to the bars and clubs and that sort of thing. But we did just miss out on the Calgary Stampede, which they tout as the greatest outdoor show on earth. That would have finished on Sunday. And it's kind of it's kind of a weird place, Calgary, Alberta, because you get this beautiful, bitterly cold winter with some super sunny days. And then you get this amazing summer that's about, it's about 10 weeks long. And it's, I mean, I look out the window out the basement right now and it's 7.30 at night and we're going to get dark at almost 10 o'clock. And then we're going to get light again at uh, 5 a.m. in the morning. So we're really, really high up at like 51 degrees north. So we get a really long sort of day of summertime and, and then really, really cold, bitter winters. So this kind of... Uh, COVID corona situation is 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 different but I think realistically like where I am right now in western Canada we really have I don't know by luck or by really hard work by the powers that be we've been pretty lucky so far that's good I'm glad to hear it hope you guys all stay safe yeah I'm very jealous we're in the middle of winter in Perth which winter in Perth is not 
really winter, but it would be nice to be in the middle of summer right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's good. I'm not envious of winter, but I know I've been to Western Australia before, and I know, I know what winters are like there. I'll take a day of that winter any day. All right. So we kick off with the same question. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood? So were you a sporty kid? Were you active? What your relationship with sport was like? My relationship with sport, sport was my outlet as a kid. So as a kid, I played those rules. I played rugby. I did track. I swam. I kayaked. I paddled. I was like, I was into everything. I was like a try, you know, like I remember being a kid doing trampolining and gymnastics and just weird and wondrous things. And I, I don't know whether that was like my, uh, my mother lending myself, you know, letting herself to all the, the local community sports and that. But I think I was just a kid that wanted to do everything and tried everything. And I think that's really what made me end up you know, sticking at, at bobsleigh, but I didn't, I didn't really find that until I was 27. So I know one of the sports that did stick around for a while was rugby. Can you tell me about your, your time there? Rugby. Okay. So when I was, when I was a kid, I come from Melbourne. So in the late eighties, my father was a Aussie rules coach and he ended up coaching the Sydney Swans team that moved up from Melbourne, the old South Melbourne team. So in 1987 and 1988, there was no such thing as Aussie rules football, especially at a junior level in New South Wales. So I played rugby as a, as a kid in school. I guess I was a terrible athlete, but I worked really, really hard. And I don't know, like being a redheaded kid with glasses in the 80s wasn't your ideal stereotype of uh, athletic kid. So I used it as my, like, my weekend outlet and pushed really hard and wanted to be good at it and wanted to excel at everything that I did. So that led me into playing rugby when I uh, was back in Melbourne and then onto like the Victorian state and national championships and played that all the way up until 27 when we, the Melbourne or Victorian team that I was part of on the Australian Rugby Shield. And then was like, I need to go somewhere else and ended up in Canada. because so I was like, well, I'll play a season of rugby in Canada. That should be a good place. It's a Commonwealth country. I can get a work visa there. And, and it's not like super hard to get to. They speak English. I'm sure the culture is great. So in 2007, July 26th, I, uh, I went over to Canada and, and played that rugby season and, and started the next. And, and it was around about that time that Canada was gearing up for the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. And I just happened to be at Canada Olympic Park, which incidentally is like 15 minutes just out of the city here, trying to learn how to snowboard because, you know, it's kind of a rite of passage for an Australian to come over to uh, Western Canada to Banff or Whistler or something and, and snowboard. And I was like, well, that'd be that'd be me. Like, I'll, I'll get out there and I'll snowboard and I'll have a great time and I'll come back and, and do all the things that I can't do in Australia. But I was out there and the, the cool running thing kept coming into my mind. <laughs> and... Sure enough, I was out there one Friday night and bobsleigh practice was happening. And it was genuinely a scene from, from the movie where, where they were sliding down the ice and you could hear it and it sounded like a steam train. So I packed my things, grabbed the keys to the car, and I went up to the top of the hill there and kind of just hung around and asked questions and then got invited to a tryout the following Tuesday. And then I guess you could probably say, you know, I can tell you all about the rest of the career, but the rest is history. I, I was like, I'm going to train for the Olympics. I'm going to go, you know, like all these, all these memories of a kid of just watching my earliest memories of watching the Olympics in Los Angeles and in Seoul in 88 and watching Australian teams have success going, I could do this. Why not? So that led me on the path to training as hard as I could to Vancouver, which was a bit of a gong show, and then being the, the two-man and four-man pilot at the Sochi Olympics in 2018. Right. So what, what drew you to racing? Was it the cool running story or was it, was it the speed or 
What component of bobsledding drew you to it? The difficulty. It's hard. It's You have to train. You have 99% training and 1% of racing. So it comes down to hundreds of seconds. And, and the difference between winning a race and not being on the podium is a couple hundreds of seconds. So that technical aspect of setting up equipment and polishing runners and aerodynamic profiles with a brakeman and all those things that you can train for, you you get drawn into it and you get sucked into it and it goes around and around and around. And, and then with my competitive nature, you want to compete against yourself and then you want to compete against other nations. And then, you know, if other Australian teams come out and compete, you want to compete against them and you want to put yourself against the best in the world. So being a competitive person and adrenaline junkie and someone that was just so foreign to them and, and maybe just a little bit of the the cool runnings thing as well like that little bit of a tropical story like what are you doing here australia you should be on the beach kind of thing kept pushing and pushing you to be a competitor and i think i think i proved that we can be a competitive nation when it comes to sports like that i mean there's always going to be a, a huge disadvantage and i probably didn't see them as an athlete because i was blinded by the competitive nature and all fairness in all sports that you can you can train and you can do everything perfect but you can't compete against the money and the engineering and the research and development i was drawn to it and i'm still drawn you did touch on a little bit about the training but can you tell me what the training regime and like the recovery actually looks like and also about the season so what does the season look like how does your training fit okay so i guess if we start the season the the first kind of tracks will open up in the northern hemisphere winter so mid-october first races are probably in november when we were qualifying for the olympics or racing in an every season sort of aspect you're culminating in either the olympic games or the world championships but the season for us would always start way back in april so at the end of the preceding season in March, probably take three, four weeks off, get rid of all the niggling injuries. And for me, it was always hamstring tears or back problems from a really tough season. And then it would start off quite slowly, building a, a solid base, a lot of tempo running, a lot of sprinting, a lot of jumping plyometrics, and probably building up to around about June, July area, six days a week, two hours in the gym, four days a week, probably two to three hours at the track. I mean, from July, probably one or two days in the ice house or on a push track, refining those pushing techniques so that when the season actually started, you were in pushing shape. So everything was built towards having that explosive power, the strength required and body weight, diet, sleep, nutrition, recovery, ice baths, massages, everything was like, it's like a job, you know, even though we didn't get paid to be a job. We set ourselves to the, you know, the standard that we're a professional group and there's no reason why we can't act professional. So set your sleep schedule, go to bed early, the things that you can do, watch your nutrition, don't go drinking, those things affect. So like a full-time job, 30 to 40 hours a week. But then when everyone else is out having the party, like, you know, the summers before the, the Olympic Games, I'd go to the party, be the designated driver, drink water and be home by nine o'clock so I could go to bed and get back up at seven o'clock in the morning and really set the temperature of the room, set the, you know, the blackout curtains and set myself up for success the next day. It's a lot of work. And like I said, when I, at the very beginning, I was looking at myself as a little fat redhead kid with glasses that wasn't an athlete. So every time I look in the mirror, that's what I see. So I work to that. Like if you think you're an athlete, that, that little bit of complacency will come in. And when you have that little bit of complacency, you might cut corners or you might be lazy. You might have a hamburger and chips more than on your cheat day or you might stay out a little bit later. So when I when I looked in the mirror and I kept seeing that, 
that that image staring back at me, even though I was probably eight percent body fat, you know, hundred kilos and and pretty ripped and super athletic. But always always saw that. And that's what my motivating factors were. Do you actually see a particular body type for a bobsledder? You know what? It's it's hard to say because you see the super tall, super ripped, athletic, goddess, Adonis, you know, sculpted out of stone people. And then you see uh, athletes like the late Steve Holcomb, who was a little bit always out of shape, but just a phenomenal athlete. Never had a six pack, always had a drink on the weekend and was always the benchmark for me. So I feel like there's not the perfect body type, but if you're... um, going to give yourself every advantage. I think uh, being consciously aware and not consciously aware to a point where I know you have a, a background in figure skating and I'm sure the image points or the performance there's a, there's a of appearance, it's a pretty pretty cutthroat kind of uh, kind of situation. Whereas a bobsledder is always looking at, oh, I want to be over hundred kilos. So I need to be eating like 10,000 calories and I need to be I need to be like a sloth so that when I'm sprinting I'm I'm not using any type 1 muscle fibers and and you'd see guys doing their warm-up laps getting puffed out because they're all fast twitch type muscles that aren't lending themselves to doing middle or long distance or anything over 100 meters so they're all ATP PC like athletes lounging around and so healthy ah uh, maybe <laughs> it's, it's certainly not a sport that requires great cardiovascular fitness that's for sure that is very different to ice skating um, in, in all very, forms. <laughs> all forms, yeah. You know, you know when you walk into the village that you know you're, um, you know you're the biggest people in the Olympic Village when the bobsledders turn up. <laughs> you can spot them. Start, you can spot them a mile away. Yeah, I'm certainly glad that for me. I mean, Facebook was big, but not not so much Instagram or anything like that. It wasn't really huge in 2014 as it is today. Like the pressure of of the image or selling yourself or trying to find a sponsor that wants to be promoted every week, you know, get their protein powder or their creatine or their or their supplements out in a social media setting wasn't a huge deal for me when when I was competing. So I'm kind of glad about that because I don't know that I could handle the stress of the image of what people think. In terms of sponsorship, what were the expectations of athletes? Like did you have sponsors? Was there a lot of funding out there for the bobsledding team? What did that look like back in 2014? As far as the Australian Olympic Committee, and I, I can't blame them, they came to the party as soon as we qualified for the Olympics. So everything up until the Olympics was on our backs. So we did a lot of t-shirt selling. We were actually very lucky that we have sleds and the sleds were basically fast racing billboards. And prior to the Olympic season, we actually used the sled as a billboard and we sold t-shirts and hand prints. And I had a, a company in Canada turn that into a wrap and we wrapped the sled with, with hand prints and signatures and hands of support to push us to the Olympics. So we actually sold a lot of hand prints on our sled and it was super cool that and then we had those handprints all arranged into the the map of Australia and everyone was sent a picture of the team their handprint and a t-shirt and I think it was like 50 or 100 bucks and we actually raised a lot of money and all the guys in the team actually brought a little bit of money with themselves too so they self we self-funded as far as endorsements and sponsorship and that sort of stuff goes it's not really a big deal you know nobody really wanted to get behind us um we were unlucky that you know sponsorship and funding through i guess the australian sports commission or the olympic winter institute of australia is based on previous world championships or, or criteria benchmarks and it's a super competitive sport where germany could put six sleds ahead of us usa or canada or 
any of the European nations that have tracks. And then once you cut out that and, and they are only allowed to have their maximum of three nations with three sleds and then five nations with two sleds, you actually get a chance to be competitive against those those nations. Because prior to that, you're always competing for places in, in races where you're you're on a lower circuit. But the next the next world champion and Olympic medalist that hasn't even been found by the German team because they already have a, a multiple world champion and Olympic medalist competing on World Cup is just coming through the ranks at 18 with all the the old equipment and it's and it's equipment based sport. Like if you think of I was watching the the Netflix special on the Formula One stuff, the equipment that's involved with those teams. If you consider that in regards to bobsleigh, you need a lot of equipment and you need to have a lot of money or a lot of research and development behind you to get that equipment. And that's really it's really tough to do when you're trying to pay for your own hotel and pay for your flights. So I guess I don't even know where I'm going with this. It was tough. And I think that that is the success, getting to that point where you can compete with what resources you have. I think that would probably resonate with a lot of athletes. I know once you're, once you're up there, once you're at world best, it's a lot easier to get that sponsorship and the support and the backing. But it takes a lot from the athlete to get to that point. Tell me about the uh, team. So you had a two-man team and a four-man team at the Olympics. How did those teams form? What was the relationship like? Who brought it together? Oh, the team. What a great team. Like we have myself, Duncan Harvey, Gareth Nichols, and Lucas Mata. Now, the Gareth and Lucas, they both came from Western Australia with track backgrounds. And Duncan was the, the brakeman in the 2010 Olympics behind, I believe, Chris Spring or Jeremy Rolston. Chris Spring. He pushed Chris Spring at the 2010 Olympics. And so Duncan and I had pushed in, in four-man and events because I was a brakeman up until 2010. And I was like, I'm going to learn how to drive because Chris is going to go and compete for Canada. And I really want you to be pushing me at the next Olympics. And he's like, well, Heath, give me a call in a year and we'll, we'll talk about it. And we kept in great contact and we're fantastic friends to this day. And uh, when I figured out how to drive and that process was you know well underway, Duncan had joined the team and Lucas and Gareth, along with a bunch of others there was you know that those three those three guys that pushed at the olympics were the the end result of four or five years of many many athletes dustin mcpherson ant ryan brad prestige all of those guys that came and pushed throughout the season they made what the rest of the team was because everyone had to pay their own way some could only come for like three or four races some could come for half a season some could come for the full season and so it was a rotating roster to make sure that that team had success and how everyone fitted in it was super unique so we planned it out that if you could only have four weeks off like what was the utilization of the best four weeks to get you know the most out of you and in previous seasons that's how we kind of built the team and then at the olympics it was the it was very subjective in its selection you know, there was there was a push competition. There was uh, input from coaches. There was input from the pilots. There was uh, push results in two-man. There was push results in four-man. And everyone was kind of ranked very, very diligently to get that team. And knowing that you'd been a part of that team to get to that point was super special because we actually had an off-site house that we rented in Sochi and where members of the team that didn't get to compete and reserves that didn't get to compete were able to come and support the team at the Olympics, which was super cool as well. That team was the result of many, many other people, not just the the four guys that actually went on the ice. That's fantastic. I love that, oh, a team effort. Yeah. You yourself have had some incredible achievements as an athlete. The Olympics was one of them. 
when you look back at your time as an athlete, what are you most proud of? It, it is hard to say because there's been a bunch of different sports. And even even now, I'm still a competitive person. I mean, last year, I uh, I entered a fundraising paddle for cystic fibrosis to paddle from Florida to Bahamas on a stand-up paddleboard, which took 14 hours in open water. It was 80 miles across shark-infested waters. But that's not it, you know. And, and next year, I plan on doing the Yukon River Quest, which is a 750-kilometer race down the Yukon River. And it's called Chasing the Midnight Sun. And then, you know, like I look back at the, the fantastic opportunity I had to play rugby and win the Australian Shield and travel to England and play players of professional for years. I think for me, and it's in the sport of bobsleigh at the Winter Olympics in Sochi, it has to be the last day of training. We were able to, so in training events for bobsleigh, they do a, basically a hat draw. And in that hat draw, we were able to draw a, a good start number. So a good start number would be a top five start number because basically when you have a four-man sled using the same track, the deterioration of the ice over the session is pretty exponential. So 30 sleds going down the track. Every every time a sled goes down the track, uh, ice falls off the track, time goes between the tracks. So the preparation that was made on the ice before the, the start of the race or the start of the session is, is deteriorating. So we actually drew a, a top five start number and we were able to come down the track with a with a finish time in both heats that was i think ninth best out of the 30 sleds which was phenomenal and that feeling i mean i have photos of that on my facebook and that understanding that all those years of hard work and the training and the the pushing and the success that was along the way and and all the hiccups all the the shitty nights of sleeping on couches and and sharing cars and rooms and traveling around Europe to get to races and preparing sleds had finally come to a point and it wasn't even a race it was everyone's testing their race day equipment ready for the race that's going to start in 2 days time and and we actually had the first opportunity that I ever remember to have a, a level playing field. That finish result that day in, in the last day of training at the Olympics, for me, is a is a highlight that I'll never forget because being on an equal playing field, knowing that we're a, a top 10 team and a top 10 nation and we've come all this way, that uh, we have success. And that, that, to me, defined success. It wasn't a race. It wasn't winning. Life gave me an opportunity to go to Canada and 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 grow and and I chose to grow in the direction of being a bobsled athlete and it just it just all hit me that day. You've very well summed it up and you've also summed up the next question. So you've looked at how as an athlete you've defined success. Has that changed? Do you still look at success the same way now? Yeah, absolutely I do. You know what? It's like challenges and end results of, you know, looking in the mirror and just and just knowing that you Believe in yourself and working hard are huge. You know, like I do look and I do define success in a very similar way. And I think that is what helps me be the person that I am. Yeah. Growing constantly. I think it's mm -hmm. a really healthy way of looking at it. In terms of stress, how did you manage stress in the sport? And again, has that changed since you've moved away from the sport? Mm, yeah, it's definitely changed since I've moved away from the sport for sure. Stress. As, as an athlete, one of the you know one of the things I used to do before I, I played rugby when I was younger, I was get so hyped up and so much adrenaline that I'd almost and a lot of times I would puke before I went out of the field because it was it was just such a huge thing. And I'd go out there and I lived off that stress and I thrived off it and it didn't matter because I knew that I'd been throwing a rugby ball around since I was seven years old. And that adrenaline and that anger and that everything was all pointed to all the training. That stress was a, a stress that I used to compete as a bobsleigh brakeman. 
I used a very similar method because you have one job and that job is to push and and push that sled as hard as you can. And there's no there's no like, oh, I'll just push it half fast because it's down to hundreds of seconds. And then as a pilot, that stress of pushing like that doesn't work because when you're pushing that hard, you need to be calm and you need to take a breath and you need to be able to have the hands of a of a brain surgeon and the eyes of an eagle and the calmness of a Zen monk once you get behind the D-rings inside that sled. So going into the sled as a hopped up, crazed three or four energy drinks later with your eyes bloodshot and sweating doesn't make for a good result. It only enhances all those twitchy nerve fibers that make for a, a poor performance. So handling the stress when I was at the Olympics, I remember listening to like some pretty chill like country music before the race or sitting down in the start house after I'd done my complete warm up and just reading a few pages of Harry Potter just to change my mental focus because all of the hard work had been done. That 99% of gym training, push training, eating, sleeping, looking after myself, that was done. All the learning of the track and understanding the corners and the pressures and where to steer and where not to steer. That You can't learn that on the, on the race day. You just need to put it all together. And if you're trying to amp yourself up to make the sled go faster, it didn't work. And, and now if I move into my um, current self, I approach situations very, very differently. I, I now fly planes. So when I'm studying for planes, I use a lot of mental imagery before or like I would when I was bobsledding. So I'd be really calm. I mean, nobody wants to get into playing with a pilot that's all hopped up and sweating, you know. And I guess my way of handling stress now, like if I can handle the, the stress of playing rugby in a packed out stadium or being at the Olympics and and I didn't really care who was watching. It was more my my family that had, and friends that had come over to Russia to watch. If I could perform in front of them, anything else in this world, it can be handled because nothing's going to be more stressful than the, the pressure that you put on yourself from looking in the mirror and saying, I'm not good enough and training so hard that you want to train at every possible flaw. So I think my way of approaching stress now is way more chill. I think it's a great quality that you've learned. You've had a few parts since your time as a competitive bobsledder. So you possess a degree in biomedical sciences and a diploma of remedial massage. You've also lead the bobsled tours through Winsport. So my understanding is Winsport is a non-for-profit organisation and the proceeds go towards supporting high-performance athletes. You're also a coach. So can you tell me about how you found the transition out of sport and into those different career paths? Yeah, absolutely. Wow, you've done, done your homework there. That's some old information, but but it's still very relevant, I guess. I was competing up until February 2015 with one or two races in 2016. On February 13th, 2013, I was, the season had just finished. I just came home from Park City, Utah, where we'd finished the season out. And uh, I was involved in a car accident, which I was T-boned by a Kenworth truck who missed a red light and pretty badly injured my shoulder and neck. And uh, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to finish the sport. And I guess if you ask any athlete, I don't know when they're in the, the throes of being an athlete or being a part of the sport. I don't know that many of them know when it's time to, to hang up the boots, to figuratively speak. And on that day, I got rocked so hard that something shifted. 
something shifted in my mind and my in my motivation in my life like i trained and i tried and i trained and i tried and i, and I was working my way to get back and and i just couldn't i couldn't get back that fearless that selfless that that heath that was pre-accident and it sucked and it wasn't till quite some time afterwards that I had a, a phone call from a friend of mine in Germany who had just received a, an opportunity to start the Chinese bobsleigh team for the 2022 Olympics, which is coming up. And he reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested in in helping him coach. And it, it was never something that I really kind of considered. And being still super competitive and still wanting to compete, I still did a couple of races and, and started doing some coaching. But I, I found that ultimately... After uh, coaching for a while, I felt like the the universe had pushed me in this direction for a reason. And as much as the car accident sucked, and once you see that that light, and you know that you're 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 a mortal human being, I wanted to give something back. And whether it was giving something back to Chinese or Australian or or Canadian athletes, I felt it was a it was a natural transition. And like I said, the universe pushed me there. And by embracing it, I found immediate success with embracing it to the fullest and giving all those years of knowledge that, that I'd gained by working really hard and soaking everything in from everyone a purpose. It was a, a purpose that made me feel meaningful again. So the transition to coaching wasn't a natural one, wasn't a planned one, wasn't something I sought out or was really seeking, but it's actually been a great transition. I mean, I tried... Uh, all sorts of things when I finished. I did a 10-day silent Vipassana meditation where I sat down and was in Java in Indonesia trying to shut off the, the voices in my head for 10 days. But it just brought me back to coaching. And now I find myself here after a couple of years with the Chinese team and now a, a couple of seasons with the Korean team, questioning if another season of coaching is potentially on the cards. I mean, I don't know what the season's going to hold with the world in the state that it's in, but it's certainly um, something that's helped me move from being a uh, athlete to a, to a mentor and a coach. It, it really made that transition a lot easier for me. How valuable do you think it is for athletes to have a plan when they stop sport? For your journey, it was cut short with the car accident. But now looking back on your time, would you have done it any differently? Oh, shit. No. Like you said, I, I did the biomedical science degree. I struggled through that. My mind was elsewhere, uh, remedial massage therapy. I, I even went to school in New York and tried to finish a master's in exercise physiology there for a time. And, and even when I was finishing bobsleigh, I went and did real estate for a little while. A plan and a transition into life, even if it's not a forever thing. And I, I don't think anything's forever. Like Educating yourself is always giving you opportunities. The opportunity that I got from working with sporting teams and the biomedical science has opened those doors. And if I didn't do those before I started being an athlete, I certainly would have struggled to, to find myself afterwards. And that's not to say that that's the path that I live my life now. It, it certainly was a part of my life and a transition of my life. Not long ago, I finished my, my pilot's license and tomorrow morning when I wake up, I'm going to get up very early and take my plane and fly to a, a country airport that has a very reputable commercial airline program. So I'm always learning. Being able to grow at every opportunity set me up to take on coaching. I don't think that not having a plan is a good idea, but I certainly think educating yourself so that when you do, you have options and setting yourself up for options is crucial. I don't think anyone should go in without having options, plan Bs. You know, for every superstar football player or rugby player or Olympian, there's plenty of 
really freaking awesome people that tried and really great people that that never made the olympics and there's still great people becoming an olympian and going to the olympics you know it's only a small part of a measure of success and being able to you know share my story of what i defined as success wasn't a winning thing but it was a years of trying to get that success but when i finished the sport there was certainly fallback plans and options So we've touched on success and also stress transitioning out of sport. What skills do you think as an athlete you've acquired that's helped you today? Yeah, there's, you know, subtle and practical real life skills of keeping calm under pressure and having drive and motivation, but other practical skills like the mechanical skills of putting together sleds and fiberglassing and welding and building and creating a budget and working to that budget and knowing how much money you have to spend. I mean, that, those things, they're re- real life skills. Now that I'm a adult and I don't feel like adult, I just turned 40, but I have a mortgage, you know, and I have to make sure that, you know, twice a month I have enough in the bank account to cover my mortgage and bills and that those skills and the acquisition of, and development of those skills comes directly from being an athlete and training as an athlete. Prior to that, it was like paycheck to bar or paycheck to party or those kind of things planning and executing a uh, budget. I just did a proposal for a, a team that I won't mention for a two-year plan into Beijing. Like what? what's it going to cost? What equipment do they need? How many athletes? Where do you find the athletes? What hotels? What are the tracks? Where do you buy sleds? Where do you buy runners? Where do you buy the sporting equipment required? Those skills were learned and growing through a struggling athlete, I guess, was my apprenticeship to be the person that I am today, the, the resource where someone can come and ask me anything when, when it's related to the sport and say, what do we need for this? How do we budget for that? What uh, What's it going to cost us for X, Y, Z? Those skills are life skills. And, and not only that, like the interaction with cultures, so many different cultures and so many different languages and so many different political systems and religious views. And my time as an athlete gave me an appreciation for all of those And I wish that more countries were involved or I could be a 27-year-old athlete forever so that I could uh, do that 100 times over to see 100 more countries and travel to 100 more places because it's pretty freaking cool, the things that I learned. There are so many athletes that look up to you, both in bobsled and just in Australian sport. Do you have any advice that you received as an athlete that you still carry with you today? Oh, there was some advice when I was playing rugby that would just go out there and just go crazy. But the one sort of advice that I carry with me today is give it everything. Back yourself, surround yourself with awesome people and set yourself up for success. And at the end of the day, you can sit back and not rest on that at all. Now I look back and this conversation has given me the opportunity to look back and say, I did everything that I possibly could to live in that moment and be that person and be the best that I could on that day. I think that speaks to all people, not just athletes. I think that's some great advice. I finish off each episode with the same question. What's next? I need 100 lifetimes to tell you what's next. But honestly, what's next? I bought a, with a friend of mine who actually was my translator when I was coaching the the Chinese team, uh, a little Cessna 172. And we've been both working on our uh, pilot's license. We both finished our private pilot's license and we're working on getting our commercial pilot's license because... I've always wanted to be a pilot. There's going to be some pretty serious long distance paddleboard races because I feel like the older you get, the less powerful you get and the more mentally tough you get. So there's going to be some when we're allowed to heavy duty, long distance stand up paddleboard racing. And I guess I'm kind of going through this mental distraction. I was supposed to get married on the 1st of August. 
but we've postponed the wedding because uh, my partner Kelsey, her her mother lives in New Zealand, and they're on a strict lockdown right now with travel restrictions. And my mum's in Melbourne, and they're as you know they're in a strict lockdown, and and I don't want to do it without my friends and family around. So we're gonna hang out, and we're gonna we're gonna prepare for that in the uh, next year. In the meantime, I'm gonna do some flying. There's gonna be uh, a lot of cool things out of this 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 guy yet. Well, I wish you and Kelsey all the best for your wedding. I hope it happens soon. I don't know how soon, but I I do hope it goes ahead as soon as possible. And all the best with getting your commercial pilot's license as well. Thank you so much for joining. Absolutely. Thank you to all the listeners for joining us. If you enjoyed Heath's discussion and you want to hear some more episodes, please hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher.